we think is beneficiary to us because it's not easy to do and those who don't have those relationships and don't have the infrastructure are not as nearly as effective as us. You can't just buy a shopping center and hire you know, CBRE to manage it and lease it for you. You can do that, but in our view, that is far from optimal. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lotes, and today our guest is Robert Levy. Robert is an expert real estate investor with 30 years in the real estate industry. He's taken on many roles over the years, including running a public company that he took private. Today, he invests in shopping malls and retail. So we're going through his business model, how he invests in shopping malls, his thoughts on the state of the industry, and also why he and his partners have been currently looking at the multifamily space to see, is there opportunity in multifamily today and why? This is a pretty wide ranging conversation going through how a shopping mall investment works, what he and his partners look for in a deal, how they do due diligence, how they manage their properties, what they bring to the table as compared to significantly larger investors, the more blue chip corporate big time money guys. Just a great conversation, so much knowledge here. And as I mentioned, we touch on his thoughts about the state of the multifamily investing space today. Great conversation. He's uh, just a wealth of knowledge with over 30 years experience in real estate, pivoting to his current shopping mall investing model just seven years ago. And uh, yeah, great conversation. You're going to learn a lot. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, and I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com. Fill out the form and schedule a call, and I will look forward to speaking with you soon. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. That's when we're here. That's when we're doing it. And if you're just hearing my voice on your podcast app, come and check us out on YouTube. We put these full-length interviews on YouTube so you can see the conversation and join in with the video joint in our YouTube community. Once again, our guest today is Robert Levy. We're talking all about his shopping mall and retail investing model, his thoughts about the state of the multifamily investing space today and whether there is opportunity in that area and much more. Let's go. Rob, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm excited to dive through your experience investing in all types of commercial real estate and your long history in the space. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us about what you do, what you invest in, what's the kind of the current state of your portfolio? Sure. Taylor, thanks to you for having me. So I've been in the real estate business for now north of 30 years, not to age myself, but done a bunch of different things. My partner and I started investing in retail about seven years ago. We just were somewhat contrarian by nature, felt that there was an opportunity, felt that most people were kind of scared of retail. We thought it was a misunderstood market and, and therefore there was opportunity. And so we started investing in retail about seven years ago. I have a pretty diverse background in real estate. I've invested in multifamily. I ran a multifamily finance and investment management company for a number of years. I've been in the hotel business and others. But we just felt that retail was an interesting space. We thought that the kind of the Amazon effect and the noise around that was certainly important and critical, but overstated. 
And so therefore there was opportunity. And so we've been investing in retail for about seven years now. Our current portfolio, we own 20 assets, about 4 million square feet. And really that's been built over the past kind of call it five years and, and then with COVID in between. So we've been pretty active acquiring somewhere 100 to 150 million of assets a year, mostly buying from public companies, large institutions who we feel are, are just don't do all the small things that we do. They don't add the value that we do. And we think there's opportunity in buying from them. Interesting. Great. Okay. So we had talked a little bit before we started recording about you're starting to step in the multifamily space a bit. Can you tell us about why multifamily? Why now? Why are you thinking about it? Sure. So, so I spent 13 years of my career in the multifamily space. As I said, I ran a multifamily finance and investment management company, a public company, which we took private. And then I left after that. So we know the space well. And so seven years ago, when my partner, Phil, and I created our current investment strategy, we thought about investing in multifamily. And our view was that at the time that we thought it was too expensive. Now, we always joke that we were wrong about multifamily at the time and right about retail because we felt that retail was misunderstood and undervalued. But maybe the, what we're seeing in multifamily now over the past year or so is not maybe proving us right, but certainly moving more in our direction. We were just concerned about buying assets at tight cap rates with floating rate debt and with business plans that required pretty significant rental growth to really make the numbers work. Again, we were wrong five, four, five, six years ago, but feels like today there might be some opportunity. So we have not acquired any multifamily. We have only acquired retail just we, we thought it was contrarian and a great opportunity. But we certainly are keeping an eye on the multifamily markets and think there will, there will be opportunity there. Great. So what are your thoughts on, you know, we've, we've seen all these huge interest rate hikes. I think the rate of increase of interest rate, I'm, I'm going to say this so redundantly, but interest rates have gone up much more quickly than I think anybody out there possibly expected. And I think faster than any time in history, I might be misstating that, but certainly faster than most people had put yep. into their underwriting in any part of the commercial real estate industry. How do you see that impacting, whether it's shopping centers and retail or multifamily? Is that kind of pushing people out of the commercial real estate space? What are your thoughts about interest rate increases? So it's interesting. So I was the, the CFO of a public company in the global financial crisis. And one of my great lessons at that time was that debt, if used improperly, can kill businesses, and especially in real estate. And so when we started investing in real estate seven years ago, we really focused on properly financing our assets. We use low leverage debt. We don't push leverage. We primarily use relationship lenders, banks, insurance companies, and credit unions. We don't do anything in the securitized markets. We don't do anything with floating rate debt. We don't take any interest rate risk in our portfolio. So today, every asset of ours is like that. We have 55, 60% financing. So low leverage, bank financing, no, no floating rate debt. That's certainly very helpful, and we feel good about that. Obviously, at some point, we're going to sell these assets or refinance these assets. And so rising interest rates could have an impact on our ability to refinance and to sell the assets at a level that we had hoped or underwrote. But we never underwrote cap rate compression. We always underwrote cap rates going up. 
And because our assets, we always buy them with a very significant positive spread between our cost of debt and our cap rates. Usually we're borrowing at, at least historically, we're borrowing at four or 5%, and our cap rates were in the seven, eight, 9% range. And so we always had a very positive spread and low leverage. So it's not as if we, there's any risk to our positions. We just, it might impact terminal values on the back end. So we feel from a risk perspective, we're in a very good position. Now, multifamily has been very different. And again, we haven't invested in multifamily, but the what we saw in the multifamily space, in our view, was extremely aggressive and just higher leverage, floating rate debt, very aggressive business plans that worked for a while. So certainly people made a lot of money for a while at it, but that's gonna be a challenge for sponsors and owners to refinance and sell those assets at accretive levels. And so we're, we are certainly keeping an eye on that market to see where there's opportunity to step in, acquire assets or finance assets, provide PREF wherever it might be, rescue type capital, if there's opportunities there. Interesting. So re- reading between the lines a little bit, selling at accretive levels is basically selling so you make a profit. It's, is it a kind of regular guy translation of that for folks like myself? But it sounds like if I'm, again, reading between the lines accurately, that you might really be painting somewhat of a dire picture. Are you seeing a lot? Do you think there's a lot of opportunity to go in and find folks who are in or, or deals that are in distress in the multifamily space that were bought too aggressively? Like, are you seeing a, a black swan event on the horizon? Or how can we read between the lines here and learn yeah. about where you think the opportunity is? It's hard for me to say because I don't see the, the breadth of everything that was done over the last couple of years, right? I, I can just tell you from what some deals that we bid on or saw in the market that we were surprised by the underwriting and the aggressiveness of the transactions. So, but it's hard for me to say if that was the entire market or a portion of the market and how those deals were financed or not financed. I do feel like there's going to be opportunity. I do feel that there are certainly multifamily properties out there that were financed too aggressively, higher, higher leverage floating rate debt with PREF behind it or something like that with very, with more aggressive business plans. I mean, it has to happen. It's interesting, like in our space in retail, when we bid on a deal, we're typically one of four, five, six bidders at most. When you're bidding on a multifamily deal, it's like one out of 50, 60, 70 bidders. How do you win a deal when you have 60 bidders, right? The only way to win that deal is to pay up, exactly, is to be the most aggressive out of the other 59 or 60 bidders that you're beating. Again, it worked really well four or five years ago because the growth in rents were extraordinary over that period of time. The question is, are we going to ever see that growth, that type of growth again? And if not, if we're seeing no growth and we're also seeing significant increases in operating expenses, we're seeing significant increases in construction costs, and all of those things are going to impact underwriting and the ability of these sponsors to hit or exceed their underwritings. And I think it's going to be difficult and challenging in there. There may be some opportunity there. Interesting. Okay. So appreciate that perspective. So you mentioned a little bit earlier in your shopping center investing, and you were able to manage properties and do the small things that the institutional guys aren't able to do. Circling back up on that, really what are those small things and really how do you run a deal in the shopping center industry to make a profit? Because I think a lot of folks are familiar with getting in, buying a multifamily raise of rents makes a lot of sense, but shopping centers, I think a bit more opaque. Like what do you do? Sure. 
Yeah, so it's actually pretty straightforward. You know, first of all, a couple things. We don't buy enclosed malls. So the enclosed mall space is a very difficult space for a number of reasons and has seen some real challenges, operating challenges over the past few years. So we, don't, we have never done that. We don't do that. Everything we buy is kind of open air, neighborhood, community shopping centers that are surrounded by the right demographics that sit on the main roads, have the right traffic counts, and visibility and ingress and egress, and they have the right credit tenants, the right layouts, all those things that make retail work. Most of, a lot of what we do has grocery anchors, so it'll have a Publix, or it'll have a Kroger, or an Aldi, or somebody, you know, anchor like that, and then there'll be tenants around it. That's what we like, it's kind of bread and butter retail. And the business plans are pretty straightforward. If you're buying an asset, let's say we're buying an asset, a good asset today at an eight cap, and we're financing it at 6%, or maybe at eight and a half cap, we're financing at 6%. We have positive leverage. So day one, we're creating good cash flow for our investors. Usually our cash and cash returns day one are in the high single digits, eight, nine, maybe even 10%. And then there's usually opportunity to push some occupancy, to push rents. So that's certainly number one. Number two, we tend to put some money into the properties, which we underwrite right up front. So we'll do some facade work, some roof work, things like that. We'll landscaping that'll enhance the property's value and look and feel of it and allow us to improve the tenancy. And then we also, there are these things called out parcels. So they, they are the parcels of the shopping center that sit out on the main road. They might have a McDonald's on it or a Chick-fil-A or a Taco Bell or something like that. And what we do is we carve those off and you sell them separately. And so if we're buying the shopping center at an eight and a half cap or a nine cap, you can sell off the Taco Bell at a five and a half or a six cap and you make the arbitrage. So that's how we make our money. We buy it at solid cap rates. We finance it the right way. We create cash flow. We enhance the buildings. We enhance the tenancy. We push occupancy and we push rents. And then we carve off out parcels or we develop out parcels and sell them. And so what you'll find is in our properties, most of our returns, a lot of our returns, usually more than 50% of our returns come from cash flow. So if we're underwriting to an 18% return, 10, 11, 12% will come from cash flow, and the rest of it will come from some improvement in value over time. And we like that. I mean, we invest in our deals and we live off the cash flow, and we think it's great for our investors. Great. Okay. So how do you handle things like asset management and property management in that industry. I mean, I'm kind of flying blind. I'm a multifamily investor myself here. I don't know the first thing about managing a, a shopping center. How do you actually run the day-to-day, month-to-month execution? Sure. So it's very different than multifamily and there's positives and negatives to it. In multifamily, if you buy a good asset in a good market, you can hire a local property manager who'll do your leasing and an on-site property management for you. And you'll do great, right? You'll, you'll oversee them if you own good real estate and you buy it right and you put in the right capital into a deal. Retail is very different. Retail is a, one of the things we really like about it is it's a high barrier to entry business. You have to really understand retail to make it work. And we love buying from those who don't understand it that well, right? Because you have to understand how to operate it. You have to have the right relationships. You have to have the relationships with the tenants. You have to have the, be able to pick up the phone and call Publix or, or Kroger or TJ Maxx or whomever, right? You have to be able to do that to underwrite the risk and then to manage the risk. And so it's not easy to do. And so we have developed infrastructure over the past seven years. We think it's some of the best infrastructure in the business. We have great property management, asset management, leasing, 
construction, legal, finance, accounting, et cetera, of course, acquisitions. We, we have all of that infrastructure in place and we use it to kind of leverage ourselves in the marketplace. We know who to call, we know, we know how to underwrite real estate, we know how to manage the risk, and we know we have all the relationships with the brokers and the tenants, et cetera, to get there. It's not an easy business, it's a tough business, but in that way, we think it's beneficiary to us because it's not easy to do, and those who don't have those relationships and don't have the infrastructure are not as nearly as effective as us. You can't just buy a shopping center and hire you know, CBRE to manage it and lease it for you. You can do that, but in our view, that is far from optimal. You can do that, but it might not work out well for you, I suppose. So how do you think about and how do you handle market analysis and market due diligence? One of the advantages we have in the multifamily space, you could, for example, say, I'm only investing in multifamily in these three parts of Atlanta. And there's probably enough supply there to keep you pretty busy and give you a lot of potential buying opportunities. But when you're talking retail shopping centers, there's just a lot less supply of that in any given market. So you probably have to have your fingers in a lot of different cities around the country. You have to know what you're getting into. So how do you handle that research and due diligence on the market level? Right. Well, first of all, just uh, is this a quick aside because you mentioned supply, which is really interesting. In retail, there has been literally no supply added to retail since the global financial crisis. So really since about 2008, there has not been any meaningful increase in supply. And in fact, there's been a decline in supply in a lot of markets because you're seeing some like C malls and B malls being repurposed as other things, multifamily or mixed use or whatever. So that's really interesting, right? You have a, a sector with declining supply and at the same time in the right locations, for example, some of the places that we've been investing in, you're seeing pretty significant increases in population and income, so which is demand, right? So you're seeing pretty meaningful increases in demand and almost no, if, in fact, uh, a negative impact or increase in, in supply in retail. So that dynamic is really helpful. And so you have tenants who want to open up more stores and who have, a lot of them are public companies who have stated publicly that they're going to open up more stores and they have very little place to go because there's no new retail being developed. And the numbers just don't make sense to, to develop retail. It's going to cost you $300 a foot to build retail and you can only charge $14 a foot in rent. The numbers just don't work. And so when you buy a good piece of retail, you feel really good about the fact that nobody's gonna build next door to you and try to steal your tenants. It just doesn't make economic sense. And so that kind of supply demand dynamic is really kind of interesting to us. But, but that was an aside. Back to your question about how do we underwrite. I mean, so we use a ton of resources, There's a lot of good data out there. There are, there is a company, there are companies that put out information about where people go to shop, the number of people that go to a, a shopping centers on a daily basis, they use cell phone technology to do that. So we can get information about who's shopping, income levels, what type of people, where are they coming from geographically that go to a certain shopping center and go to certain stores. We know the credit of tenants because a lot of them are publicly traded companies. We can see, we, we pay for a database that gives us basically like research on all of the major tenants in, in, re, in the retail space. So we can see who has solid balance sheets, who doesn't, you know, who has well-managed companies and who doesn't. We have calls into every retailer out there. So we can say, hey, listen, we're looking at this project at this corner. Would you be interested in coming to this corner? Would you be interested in coming here? Or if they're in there, how are you doing? How are your sales? 
And then we look at all different things around, as I mentioned before. We look at very, very strongly at demographics. We look at ingress and egress into shopping centers. We look at visibility. We look at the size of boxes, right? You don't want to have retail that has, where the boxes are too big or they're not laid out properly. So we look at shapes and sizes. We look at ceiling heights. We look at construction, HVAC, roofs, all that stuff. There's, a, there's just a ton of variables that go into assessing good real estate or good retail. Okay, interesting. So you threw out a few things there. In general, what would you say are a couple of red flags that are like big issues for you? You mentioned boxes that are too big, which is a, a great example, but any other ones that stick out where you're just immediately like, no, we're not doing this deal? Yeah, bad credit. So if there is a tenancy that has retailers that are just bad credit tenants, where the risk is too high that they're going to leave or they're, gonna, they're, not, gonna, they're not gonna perform, now, that could also be opportunity, right, to kind of the other side of that coin, right? If you have a great box in a great position in the center and it's tenanted by a bad retailer who their lease is coming up in a couple of years and they're paying below market rent, they love that situation. But you have to look at the risk side of it as well. So certainly, as you mentioned, size of boxes, the, tenant, the tenancy demographics, we pay a lot of attention to, right? You don't want to be in a place where you have low income, not low incomes, but reducing incomes, incomes that are going down or population that's going down. So that's something we pay a lot of attention to. Those are probably, I mean, there's other red flags out there, but sales levels, we, we look at sales levels at our tenants and we know how profitable they need to be at a certain store to keep it open, to kind of thrive there. And so we could look at sales levels in relation to their costs of operating there. We know what their costs are. And so we want to have the right ratios of kind of sales to their costs. So that's another potential red flag if, if their cost ratios are too high in relation to their sales. Interesting. Okay. So when it comes to a tenant that's maybe not a great credit tenant and their lease is kind of coming up, so that could be a good sign. But I would assume on the other side, the price needs to reflect that, right? Because you might have a vacancy in some for some amount of time. There's probably other factors there that you have to consider. What would those other factors be if you have a tenant coming up, not a great credit tenant, you want to get them out of there, but you also need to know that the price is going to be right. There's going to be opportunity. You're going to be able to release it, all of that. Right. What else would you think about that in that? Well, I guess the first thing is, are you assessing Are you assessing whether that's risk or opportunity, right? So that's the first question. Like you have a bad tenant in a box and there, and the question is if they were to leave, do you feel confident in your ability to backfill that space and backfill it in a profitable way, right? So what's the cost to backfilling it? Is that box in good shape or bad shape? Does it need $40 a foot in work or does it need $80 a foot in work? So we can assess all that right up front. So we can underwrite that. What do we think is the cost of backfilling them? And then we call all the tenants in the market and outside of the market and we say, hey, if this box were to become available in two years, would you be interested? And we, so we can very quickly assess whether that box is leasable and we know what most tenants at the national and the regional level, what rents they'll pay, what costs it will cost us to bring them in. So we can kind of assess all of that those economics, and then we just price it based on that knowledge base. And where, if there, again, if there's opportunity or risk, and if we don't feel confident in our ability to backfill, then we don't do the deal. Sounds like a good bit of work and time invested in a deal before you're even ready to make an offer, or get it under contract. A lot of time to analyze it and really shop it around before you make an offer. Our underwriting process, I think, is as stringent as anybody's out there. I'm sure there are other guys who do the same thing, but when we put a number on the table, 
we are very confident in that number. We know exactly what we can spend, what we can pay, and it has helped us from a reputational perspective. When I said to you before, when we are, when we're bidding on a retail deal, typically it's one, we're one out of four, five, six bidders. A lot of that is because the, the everything is going through brokers these days. So the large brokers, the CBREs, the JLLs of the world, everything is going through those guys and others and other kind of large brokers houses. And they know who the buyers are. They know who the guys are that, that are not just kind of throwing something up against the wall to see what sticks. And they know that we are, when we put a number on the table that we can execute at, and that's the number that we believe in. And so that has helped us reputationally, and, and therefore we see, we think we see pretty much every deal that comes to market. Interesting. Cool. Well, I'm glad we dove into the business model. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Are you looking for a way to easily track your rental property finances? Check out Stessa. Stessa makes managing real estate investments simple. You can easily keep track of the performance, finances, and the paper trail of your rental properties. Our listeners can get started for free and then upgrade at any time to unlock their more advanced tools. And the even better news is that the upgrade is very affordable and will not break your bank. Smart investors know that tracking the numbers, tracking the money, tracking the finances is what really drives your success. Check out Stessa. It'll make your property finances easier. Just go to escapingwallstreet.com, scroll down to the Stessa logo, and get started for free. Now back to the show. Hi, Rob. I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Sure. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? I mean, I'd, I'd have to say the best investment I ever made was in our company, in investing my time and money with my partner, Phil, in the company. I spent most of my career in the institutional world. I was in investment banking. I was, as I said, I ran out this public company and et cetera. And I don't have many regrets in my career. I wish uh, I had done this sooner. That's the only, my only regret. I is, we've, we've been doing it for seven years. I wish I was doing it for 17 years because <laughs> I feel like there's great opportunity out there. I think we do it really well. And so investing in our company has been fantastic for, for you know, my partner and I, but, I, but also for our investors. I, I feel we, we take our fiduciary responsibility. It's really critical for us. We take it very seriously and we enjoy that part of the business. And so investing in this company has been a, a fantastic experience for us. Love it. Well, we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Well, I wish I could just say I've had one. I've had more than one, but you know, you learn your lessons. But I think, so I'll just throw one out there. I, I invested in some oil and gas earlier in my career. And because I felt in what I had read that it was an opportune time. And it wasn't, and that's fine. I lost some money. It wasn't a lot of money, but I lost some money. But but was good at what came out that was real positive about that is a lesson learned, which is invest in what you know and, and what you understand. And like we see a lot of opportunities today in, in, in various asset types. And we always feel like we just want to stick to, to our knitting, like stick to what we really know. And so I, it was a bad investment, but that's okay. I lost some money and I learned a lesson that I didn't know anything about oil and gas. And I probably should not have been investing in it. I just read about it in Barron's, the Wall Street Journal or something, and it sounded interesting. 
but invest in what you know and who you trust and who you believe in and you'll do well. And so lesson learned on a bad investment. I appreciate that. Unfortunately, it sounds like it wasn't that big of a loss for you, but a, a valuable lesson. And that brings us to my favorite question here at the end of the show. What is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? So I think, I mean, there's a, there's a number of them I, I can probably hit on, but I think I'm going to say two, if you don't mind. The, 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 sure. I'll say them quickly. The first is what I said before, which is around debt. I just think that the way you finance a piece of real estate is probably, may not be the most important, but it's, it is up there as one of the most important variables in investing in real estate and how you finance a deal, how you capitalize a deal. And lessons learned in the global financial crisis when you thought a lot of this stuff could never happen and then happened. So those black swan events, you need to really think through them and finance your assets in a way that protects you in a down environment. And so we have really taken that to heart in how we finance and capitalize our current deals. I think we're very conservative, as I mentioned before, low leverage, fixed rate, relationship borrowing. And I think that will serve us well and, and has already served us and our investors well. And then I think the second thing is no kind of, we always talk about, is it, is it the horse or the jockey? And I think in a lot of ways, it's the jockey. I think buying the right real estate, of course, is critical, but you can put the same piece of real estate in two different firms' hands and the outcome will be very different. And a little bit of a plug for us, I think we are the right jockey. And I think that's just really critical is picking the right partners in a deal and, and I think that's kind of a, a critical piece of success in real estate. Absolutely. I've seen personally firsthand the importance of planning and communication and how much that matters in terms of how a deal turns out, amongst many other things. But sure. those, I think, are some that people tend to fail on. But anyway, thank you so much for joining us today. If folks want to learn more about what you're up to, find your company, anything like that, where can they track you down? Sure. So our... Our website is lbxinvestments.com. You can just, any, if anybody wants to just email me, I'm rob at lbxinvestments.com. And we'd love to talk. We're building a business. We're building our investor base. And we'd love to talk to anybody who at least has some questions or are interested in what we're doing. And we put out research. You had just mentioned this, Taylor, about communication and transparency. We spend a lot of time on that. I ran a public company and so we do find that very critical to what we do. So happy to share with anybody who calls me or emails me how we communicate and some of our reporting and, and research that we put out and tell our story a little bit. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Once again, to everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.